In this episode, we dive into iron wheel broadheads, the idea, the conception, the physics, and of course, the bone-crushing penetration. You are listening to the Archery Maniacs Podcast. This is Remy Warren. I am Rihanna Carey. My name is Adam Foss. This is Paul Tetford, professional archer. Hey everyone, I'm Christy Titus, and you are listening to Archery Maniacs. We cover everything archery, from the hunting side to the tournament side, with stories, tips and tactics, gear reviews, and more. That, that helped my tuning game so much when I made sure that all my arrows were square. And I'm just staring into his eyes, blood's dripping off of its tines, mud is everywhere. The clarity these mavens offer is amazing. I'm just like Spider-Man, you know, on this rock, you know, just <laughs> laying there. Belly crawling in there and I can barely fit in there and I can hear the cat growling at me. So I put my hand on his shoulder and pushed him, and we just ran at this elephant. All right. Well, I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer and a, and a bow hunter. I've been bow hunting for oh, over 35 years now. I've been a mechanical engineer doing product, um, product development, component mechanism designs for various companies for about 25 years or so. Um, but um, my passion is really bow hunting, um, bow hunting out west for um, – elk, mule deer, um, although I, I do like whitetail hunting as well. Um, but so I guess started in this, let's see now, it's been almost 15 years ago, I think, when I moved to Colorado about 20 years ago, uh, started elk hunting, um, got finally got a shot on a nice bull and hit the shoulder um, blade. I think I hit the back of the edge of the shoulder blade, got poor penetration, I lost that bull and, um, you know, it really bothered me a lot. I just thought, you know, I got to use my engineering, um, skills to find a better broadhead. Um, so I started, you know, analyzing, analyzing, um, but, you know, doing all the physics of archery, really digging into it, look, looking at the other broadheads made testing a lot of broadheads and, uh, eventually decided that, um, I should just make my own. And I really just made it for myself, um, iterated on the design over several years, but I was trying to make a broadhead that would make it through that shoulder blade on an elk, you know, pass, uh-huh. through, um, pass through that shoulder blade, make it through the vitals. I just, you know, I, maybe from being a whitetail hunter, I always kind of aim close to that shoulder. I just feel like that's the place where you get the quickest kill if you're kind of in that triangle there. And yeah. Yep. And, yep. I agree. And the bones are just too close. I think I want to be able to hit them and make it through them. And so that's what I was really going for is a really strong, um, broadhead that would pass through a shoulder blade. And, and we've, I probably had 50 people tell me this year that they've, they've made pass through shots on animals, including, you know, shoulder bones, shoulder blades. So it's, um, Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's really what got me started and and why I I started doing this. Wicked cool. So, how many? Uh, what was kind of how long was the the trial period? You know, from hey, this looks like a good design. Um, let's have a few made and let's test them and test them and test them until until we're ready to start producing them. How long was that trial period for your broadhead? Yeah. So it was. I spent about two years just um, buying and testing other ones. Um, I was saving elk, elk shoulder blades with the meat on and hide on and shooting through them and, uh, <laughs> and shooting a lot of cow femurs, things like that. Um, so a couple of years I was really testing others. And then I, 
I found things I didn't like about all of them. And really a lot of it was the materials they were using um, to meet the price point that they needed to. They're using really the cheapest blade steels and uh, really low cost materials in general. Um, and I didn't care about cost um, because I was only going to make them for myself. You know, I just wanted to make it the best materials manufacturing process possible. And so, you know, I made the first batch in, um, <clears throat> it was around 2006. Um, I made a hundred pieces and I, my brothers and I, so I've got four brothers at Bohunt, um, quite a few friends at Bohunt. So I was just supplying them to um, a couple of my brothers, a couple of friends, and we'd, we'd shoot animals with them each year and, and keep track of how they performed and then decide what we wanted to improve for the next year. And did that for um, several years. So we just make a batch or so each year. Um, I worked through five different steels over time to, until Dang. I found one. Yeah, until I found one. And I've got a, a lot of materials background and tool steel background. And um, I started out with, um, you know, some high-end stainless blade steels. And and the, the problem with those is that with stainless steel, you have this, um, you know, it's greater than 13% chromium to get the good corrosion resistance. Um, and they work okay for blade steels if they're, th if they're thick enough, but, um, in a broadhead blade where you have that high impact, um, having them hard enough to be, to make a good blade steel and, and be able to get a really sharp edge and hold that edge, they become too brittle for that impact. So, um, that's why I went to an S7 tool steel and eventually to an A2 tool steel. Um, A2 is used in metal stamping dies, you know, to cut metal. So it's very tough. But it's also a premium blade steel. You can get it, um, and we do this in our blades, 60 Rockwell C hardness. So with that high hardness, that high strength, you can get an extremely sharp edge. You know, with a softer steel, you can't get the edges. You can't grind them that sharp. Um, but they also hold the edge really long. With that high hardness, you can, you know, you can get a pass through on an elk and shave hair. And that's been my experience with all the elk I've passed through is that that broadhead's still sharp, even through, even, even with a shoulder blade included, it's, um, it's shaving hair. And I've tested a lot of okay. other broadheads out there. And, and typically, surprisingly, you get through the hide and they're actually, the, the edge is getting rounded off. Um, and you go through a, a rib and that edge is gone. And so right. that's, you know, that's, um, I mean, you know, I'm zooming these up 200 X and I'm, I'm being very critical here, but, but really, um, you go through the hide and you're not shaving hair anymore on those and you go through a rib and it's, it's smashed down or bent over enough that it's starting to just push tissue aside or tear tissue and not slice as well. And, um, you know, that's something I learned too, is that should be sharp and slicing all the way through, you get a lot quicker kills, um, and, and better bleeding out of that. So. Yeah, that that's 100% agreed there is, uh, I mean, it's, you can just equate it to, you know, when you cut yourself with, say, a Havilon, uh, it bleeds a lot more than when you cut yourself with a serrated steak knife, you know. Um, right. It's just, like you say, a clean cut, it's just, it just bleeds so much quicker and it's a lot harder for the, the body itself to mend the clean cut. Um yeah, so to, uh, um, I don't know if I answered your question completely, but yeah, we'd build a batch each year. And then that final design we used for a few years and shot, we shot over 50 animals with it. Um, and at the time I still hadn't planned to make it for anybody, but my friends and family, but I, um, I met a, a younger guy, Eric, um, up in a backcountry 
basin. We were both bow hunting and we became friends and he had a marketing background, um, saw the animals I was taking, the performance. And, and really we decided to, uh, to team up. He was pushing me and we decided to team up and, and bring it out as product. Awesome. Awesome. That's, that's, that's pretty crazy, you know, cause you think about, you know, from, from an outsider standpoint, you know, someone that I've, I've worked on, you know, designing my own products and things like that. But until you jump into that, you don't realize that it doesn't go from here's my idea. Here's the prototype. I'm going to test it for a month. <laughs> it's never a month. Right. And then, then, you know, if, if you're going to sell it, I'm going to be selling it by next year. And it very, very rarely happens like that. You know, it's, it's a process. <laughs> right. And I, I knew that from doing product development with, with, um, work for, a few companies over there, some were startups. I knew that having, having really, um, a really good engineered product that performed great. I knew that was, you think you're like 90% of the way there. Um, but really to get that product out in the market, you're less than half the way there. Um, because the other half is, is getting, getting people to learn about it and understand it and, and use it. And, uh, surprisingly just two years um just been two years since we kind of launched the company and showed it at the denver sportsman's expo um i'm amazed at how quickly word has spread um and with with kind of minimal marketing on our standpoint we've never paid for a, an ad um in a magazine or, or anywhere never paid anybody to shoot them and I think just enough people have tried them and been amazed with the performance that the, the word has spread and and we've grown tremendously in, in two years here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, like I told you, uh, before we started, I said, I, you know, I, I started hearing about you and then I started hearing about you more and more frequently. And before I knew it, it was a hearing about it, you know, if not once a day, it was three times, three to five times a week and never a bad thing, you know? So, uh, that, that's the kind of stuff that, that will explode a company. So that's, that's good for you guys. You know, that's awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I was just at uh, the ATA show last week and um, it was really encouraging all the people in the industry that came up, came up to our booth and talked to me and said that uh, either they were shooting them or, or a colleague was shooting them and had excellent performance. And um, they're just a step above what anybody is used to for a broadhead in terms of how, how it can zip through, uh, you know, I had several people tell me, I thought I missed my elk it zipped through so quickly. He didn't, he didn't know he was hit. Um, you know, it's funny that you bring that, that specific point up this year. Cause I was filming a gentleman in New Mexico and he was shooting, uh, your iron wheel solids and he, I, I you know, out of the corner of my eye, I see him drill, draw back and the elk kind of sees it. So he runs out of, I don't know, there's five, 10 yards still, 28 yards or something 33 yards and he shoots and i just hear this thud like a salt like a log sound and i'm like oh he must have shot right underneath it and hit a log no it passed all the way through it and hit a log on the other <laughs> side <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, lost, I lost two arrows this year where where my um my elk was just walking slowly along this this bridge and it was at 40 yards and 
And I, I took the first shot and it zipped through so quick and there was like no sound. I thought, did I miss? I, I know, I know I hit it, but it zipped through that elk and it just kept walking slowly and it stopped after about 10 yards and I actually put a second one through him right as he was starting to, to drop. But two arrows zipped right through him, but over a ridge, I never even found him. But yeah, the penetration oh, was no. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you know, kind you kind of covered the importance of having a good steel, you know, holding holding a good edge, and then also so that it's you know solid enough that it, when it hits bone or whatever else, it continues to hold that edge. Uh, some other things that I've heard about your guys' broadheads is is how well they shoot, how accurate they are. Um, what is what's some of the some of the stuff that you had to do as far as design and engineering to help that help that two blade broadhead be be such an accurate broadhead? Right. Yeah. Good question. Um, I started out with a, a longer broadhead, and I had tested a lot of. Yeah, so, you know, I was always a three-blade guy, but through the penetration testing I was doing with the other broadheads, I really found that a two-blade or two-blade with bleeders is far, far out penetrates the three-blade. Um, say a three-blade with the with the chisel point or even the one-piece kind of construction um, three-blade heads, um, the two-blade just out, far out, out penetrated it. And so that was the direction I was going. And, you know, I was doing some, some flow app, flow analysis like CFD computational fluid dynamic analysis over the blades um, looking at looking at drag um, drag from a side when things like that you know that that helped me design the shape of the blade um, but also just just long-range testing um, and, and over time my broadhead blade got got more compact um, it got shorter in the overall length front to back and um, that Tanto tip, that second angle tip that's at a steeper angle, you know, I brought that back in further just to kind of minimize the total surface area um, for flight. And, and the reason I did that is, you know, my, I wanted max penetration on elk, but I also, I really got into mule deer hunting as well during that time frame. And the, the 40 yard max range I had from whitetail hunting growing up um, just wasn't cutting it for mule deer. I, it seemed like my, um, I needed to push my range out that 60, 70 yards. And I did a lot of long range shooting. And that was a goal of mine too, is to be able to, you know, hold tight groups at that range. So I, I really feel like it, it does that. The, the V100 was the initial broadhead. Um, that's a great shooting broadhead by, by all accounts. There's a, a lot of guys shooting that, um, tight groups at, you know, 80, hundred yards and plus. And, and these are, um, you know, I, the average guy shouldn't be doing that, but these are guys that are, um, you know, either professional shooters or competitive shooters, or they really put the time in to, to tune their bow and be able to shoot that far. But um, if you can shoot that far, I think the arrow, um, the, this broadhead will, will work for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, I, it, it's interesting because I've heard, uh, I myself, I haven't shot uh, a fixed blade, two blade, Um until I started learning about yours and now I'm very interested in getting some, <laughs> but, uh, I had a friend of mine that was shooting a, a very big two blade Wacom. And he said it was total hell getting that thing to, uh, getting it to tune and everything like that. And it was, it was, 
I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not an expert or anything like that about designs of broadheads. However, going back to yours, I, I told him, I said, you know what, uh, you might want to look into the two blade iron wheel because uh, I've just heard excellent things about how they fly. And he was so hesitant about that because of all the issues that the the other two blade he was shooting was giving him. Um, so it's it's interesting to hear you know some of the some of the things that you took into account as far as design in order to make them fly well. Yeah, you know, I had it in my head as well that a two blade wouldn't fly as well. I always shot, I always shot three blade um, heads in the past, and it I just had it in my head that this two blade it's going to catch air more or plane more and um and it really comes down to you know how much surface area uh, are you presenting to the to the cross breeze or or even the, the head-on wind if your arrows you know porpoising or fish detailing and, and whether it's a two blade or a three blade it's really that 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 surface area um that's projected, you know, to that surface where the wind is coming. So it, you know, the physics didn't really say that a two blades any worse than a three blade. Um, so when, once I got it, uh, once, once I review all that and understood that, then, then I really decided, yeah, a two blade is the way to go. Cause you get the, you get much better penetration. Um, the penetration testing I've done, even with say a cut on contact three blade, um, I'm getting about, takes about half the force to push through, um, say hide and, and some other materials. So I think we get double the penetration of, you know, a sharp cut on contact, um, three blade. And if you get into mechanicals, I recently tested a mechanical through uh, moose hide and some foam and, and we were about 10 X, uh, 10 X lower force to push through that. Um, <laughs> Jeez. compared to a mechanical and, and then, a a chisel point, like a trocar tip, um, three blade. Um, it was nearly 10 X with that as well. And I should say that, um, the mechanic would have been even higher. Um, that's when I started crushing the blocks beneath it. And so I wasn't getting an accurate peak force, but, um, yeah, it's, it's just night and day difference. What our extremely sharp, um, two blade head, uh, how well that penetrates compared to other broadheads out there. Yeah, absolutely. Did you did you test against um, you know like a, a oh gosh dang the G five Montec or anything like that where it is where it's not a chisel tip it's you know just straight it's a straight solid cut on contact. Do you test against any broadheads like that? Yeah, so that's what I mean by a um, a three blade kind of one piece construction. Um, Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. Cut on contact. Like, so, so there's a few out there and yes, I tested against those and, um, and, and, you know, those are very, in general, I'd say they're not, a, they're not as sharp. Um, yeah. In general, with that solid three piece for one, the angles are, it's a 60 degree included angle. Um, it, whereas ours is, um, 19, 19 per side or 38 total. So just having that angle makes a difference. And, and just the sharpness you can get and the force to penetrate. And then the process they use to make them is, is doesn't work as well as um, the process we use to, to make our blades. You know, we can, we can process them um, like we would, uh, you know, a premium knife steel where you start with a very uniform um, plate of steel and then, 
um, make the blanks and then go through the heat treat process. We do a cryogenic treatment to make sure the steel is very uniform um, and very hard. And then we go through a triple tempering process um, to keep that high hardness, but yet increase the toughness with each, each draw in that tempering process. So I, mean, was, I spent about a year just working on the heat treat process to get the maximum performance uh, we could out of the steel. And you know, nobody's going to do anything close to that. They're going to do just a, a quench and single temper um, because these other steps take, take more time and at, at cost. But yeah. if you want the best performance out of the steel, you know, I've talked to high-end custom knife makers and that's the kind of process they would go through in the knives that they're selling for, you know, several thousand dollars a piece really. So, yep. but yeah, I think you really get what you, what you pay for here. Our, our prices, you know, two to three times higher than other broadheads, but it's because of the materials in the, in the manufacturing processes that we go through to make it, to make it better. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and and I think you know you're pro, you're like you said you're going after uh, the niche market of of the serious guys, and and the guys too that you know it, it really only takes once of a of a blade breaking or a broadhead or an expandable knot opening or whatever, and you pretty well don't want to shoot that broadhead ever again. <laughs> you know, it only takes once. <laughs> Right. And, um, and that's why there's, uh, <laughs> I think there, I was talking to some broadhead collectors. They said there's 50 to hundred new broadheads that come out every year. And Holy hell, 50, 200, 50, uh, 50 to hundred. Um, oh, 50, but still that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's like new models every year. Cause these collectors try and buy, you know, one of each of them and, uh, and have these massive collections. So yeah, it's, it's a very competitive market. I, I think the reason why um, there's so many that come out every year is because yeah, somebody will have one and have it fail and they'll be looking for a new one. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot, a lot of broadheads coming out every year, but there's, I haven't found anybody else. Um, I mean, to me, they're all the same stuff. They're all the same low cost, um, very cheap uh, materials and manufacturing process. Cause they're trying to, you know, they're trying to sell three for 30 or 40 bucks. So um you know, if you, if you figure manufacturing cost on a typical product sold retail is maybe 25%. Um, so they're down to a couple of dollars, um, per broadhead for that they can really put into materials and manufacturing processes. And we're, you know, we're doing 10 times that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that, that makes makes sense, uh, but I can tell you, I I'd much rather take one of your guys' broadheads that I know when I shoot an animal, it's it's going to do what it's supposed to do, as opposed to man, if, if I hit a rib, I might break a blade, and then I might not find my animal, and that's obviously that's the thing we're all trying to not have happen, you know. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, I think there's just too much riding on that shot. I think out of out of all the gear you have, um, broadheads are pretty important. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I live, that's an excellent way to put it. You're literally all the camo you bought, all the optics, the bow, the tag. It's all riding on how that broadhead's going to perform once it hits that animal. <laughs> right. Yeah, a lot of guys are wearing so, so- wearing socks that cost more than their broadheads. You know. <laughs> 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 yeah yeah which i guess you're hunt riding on that too but that's a rabbit hole we don't need to we don't need to go down because we're we're talking about broadheads but 
Uh, as far as as far as you know, how your your broadhead performs in let's say windy conditions. Um, you know what what kind of tests did you do? Uh, you know what kind of rings and hoops did you make it jump through? And did you did you put it head to head against any of the mechanicals? You know because obviously that's one of the the big perks of a mechanical is hey this thing's going to fly great whether you know how to tune your bow or not and if it's windy or not it's going to fly so what kind of stuff did you you know do as far as wind tests and things like that because we all know in wyoming and colorado it's pretty windy (laughs) right so i don't i don't test i haven't tested against very many mechanicals but i i test against field points all the time um awesome so yeah I, i have a range out here that um, with targets set up out, out to 100 yards. So I'm shooting. And where are you, where are you located, Bill? Just so people kind of know. Uh, yeah, I'm in uh, the, I'm in Colorado like. in the in the foothills, um, in northern Colorado near Loveland, Fort Collins area. And cool. So yeah, I'm on an acreage here right in the foothills. So we get yeah we get plenty of wind here, but uh, I have a range <laughs> set up. And um, so I shoot broadheads every day along with field points. So I have a good feel for uh, how they shoot compared to field points in, uh, in, in wind, cross breeze, things like that. And, and that, so that was really the testing over time is I wanted to have a drift um, that wasn't substantially different than, than field points. And, you know, I, I think it, it came out pretty good. I don't think there's, there's much difference in, from what I've seen. What, you know, when I when I think of a broadhead with drift, uh, you know, probably like most people, I think okay, surface area is going to equal more drift. Um, so, you know, if you if you know shooting one of your solid broadheads, for instance, what do, do, does your does your solid broadhead automatically drift more than say your vented broadheads, or is there? Is there, are they pretty comparable? Um, Cause like I say, you, you automatically would assume more surface area would obviously have wind would have a higher effect on it. So what, like what, what did you do to mitigate that? I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive. Well, it is a surface area, but surface area of, of the whole arrow and veins and broadhead, you know, together. And as it's, mm-hmm. as it's rotating, you're, you know, you're changing what's, what's presented to that to that wind, whether it's, um, the main blade or the bleeder blade back and forth and, and surface area wise, yeah, the, the saw blade has a little more than the vented, but as a percentage of the total surface area, the whole arrow and veins and everything, it's pretty small. And, and I was trying to decide if I was going to shoot solid or vented last year. So I shot the, the, the V125 and S125 and field points really all, all summer long. And, um, you know, with the tune bow, they shot really similarly for me. I was, I was grouping them together. Um, it's, and, and I didn't really see a difference, um, in the crosswind. Now I would say too, that as the crosswind increases, um, I don't shoot as accurately either, you know, when the wind's pushing on. Right. Uh, right. So my, I think my groups would tend to open up more than to really, um, I really didn't see that um, solid was say drifting more than vented or really drifting much more than field points. It was more just my groups opening up at that point. Gotcha. Interesting. No, that's, that's, that's cool. I mean, I, I, I'm sure with along your journey, you, you grabbed a few broadheads that you shot them and you saw where it hit and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, and I mean that that obviously plays a little bit into bow tuning and and whatever else, but still, I mean, you can if you can shoot a good group at eighty yards and then you go to forty and you screw on a broadhead and you almost miss the target, it still makes you wonder what the hell. Uh, right, and but and there's some shooters like uh, Greg Greg Poole, for instance, um, shot the shot our, I think it was S one. I can't remember if it was S one twenty or five or S one fifties. Um, this year, I think it was S one twenty fives, but he showed a bunch of video clips of, uh, he was doing this line shooting at a hundred yards or he was just putting them right next to each other on a line with the, the saw broadhead. So I mean, guys that, that know how to shoot and have their bows tuned in, um, have shown pretty incredible, uh, long range performance with the broadhead. Yeah. And, that's that's wicked cool yeah and you said you know uh tony he's another guy that um he did this cold bow challenge where he just pick up his bow and shoot one each day and i think it was 80 yards he was putting them all in the in the bullseye but um yeah ask ask him how they shoot because he's he's one of those guys that um is capable of of really making those shots and letting you know yeah absolutely absolutely I, and i i tony's such a good guy too i i uh I really enjoy talking with him and uh, everything like that. In fact, he's supposed to be coming on the podcast here in the next couple of weeks talking about his season. And I'm sure we'll talk about the broadheads as well. Um, yeah. He's a good guy. With, he's a good guy to listen to. Cause I think he's, I think he's taken at least 10 big animals with, um, with my broadheads in the last, uh, between this season and last season. Um, that guy just gets yep. it done every Right, <laughs> gets it done every time. It seems like does a number of, of big mule deer um, hunts each year and, and elk hunts and yeah. Oh yeah, I would hate to be a mule deer that that dude sets his sights on. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Man. I agree. He always he always gets it done on on all. The <laughs> uh, so. Uh, last question I have uh, about the the design of the broadhead itself is, you know, it's 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 got a bleeder blade, which I think is awesome. But what made you decide to go with a bleeder blade as opposed to just a regular, you know, two blade without a bleeder? And you know what what factors were into the shape and the length and everything like that and the design of that bleeder blade. Yeah, good question. So I started out without one. Um, a couple of years of of uh, of testing broadheads without bleeder blades, and I was getting you know amazing penetration, and um, we were we were killing animals okay, but occasionally we just get a poor blood trail that single slice through. Um, I just think it, I don't know if it sometimes is certain orientation with the hide or the muscle or whatever, but occasionally we just get a really poor blood trail with it. And uh, my brothers were pushing me and one brother, uh, Tim in particular had, had shot about 25 animals with them um, at that point and was really pushing to, to add the bleeder. And I didn't want to do it. It was, I was worried it would decrease penetration and um, you know, it was going to add cost and complexity. Um, it took a while to really get a design that I really liked and and also to get it to where it was kind of didn't really affect penetration very much, you know, less than 10%, I think on, on reducing penetration with it. And it was just making a three quarter inch wide set back from the main blade. Um, not too much overall surface area. So it didn't really affect, had no, seemed to have no effect on flight, but, um, 
big improvement, I think, on getting very consistent blood trails and quicker kills. You know, that that three-quarter inch cross cut, um, you know, the corners kind of the way they come together in that cross just kind of all pull back then and you get this open hole through the animal and uh, just much more blood, um, much better blood coming out of the animal so you can have that more consistent blood trail. Um, that was a definite improvement. Also, you know, with an extra three-quarter inch cut, now we're up to, so the main blade is an inch and a sixteenth wide. So if you add the three-quarter inch, we're up to, um, I think it's 1.812 inches total cut. And so, um, you know, that more slicing you get, more bleeding, animals um, die quicker. So, you know, four, I think four of the animals I took this year um, dropped within 20 yards, you know, between 10 and 20 yards. It just seems like zips through. They often don't even know they're hit, and they, they die quickly. So... Um, anyway, that's the reason for the bleeder. I think it's a big improvement. Um, I think a lot of guys, I mean, my, my father and grandfather, um, used bleeders on their big, you know, bear razor heads and things like that years ago. And they told me that as well. I guess I'm, it was a little hard headed. I had to uh, prove it to myself, but I do think it's better. Yeah, for sure. I, I, you know, I think anytime you can get more cuts, in the animal when you know when you hit them <laughs> anytime you can get more cuts in the animal uh and it not affect accuracy and wind you know or i think you know especially if the, if you can still maintain strength and durability as well i think you've probably got a, a, a kind of a no-brainer you know yeah i think it's the way to go really for all north american big game um we just came out with a, a buff buff series we call it a buff 200 buff 250 where the bleeders are removed and it's really because i had a number of guys wanting to go hunt cape buffalo with them and asked me what was which broadhead would i recommend and as i thought through it i thought you know i wouldn't recommend um ours as is i would remove the bleeder blades so um that's what i've got those coming out here in a couple of weeks um you can remove the bleeder from any of our other broadheads also it just reduces the weight by 10 grains but um in general, I think you're much better having that bleeder in there. Yeah. Yeah. That, yep. I agree. I agree. And it's, uh, man, it, it honestly makes them look super lethal. <laughs> you, you know, it really does. They just look wicked with that bleeder blade. <laughs> yeah, you gotta be careful. That's where everybody cuts themselves. Cause they're, <laughs> they're, they go to pick it up and, uh, they stick their thumb into that bleeder. So yeah, they're right. They <laughs> Well, cool. Well, you know, apparently you guys are doing great. Your company is growing really well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the new offerings for 2019. You know, I like to say I noticed some of the, the 200 and 250 grains. I noticed some, uh, some footers or collars. Uh, and then I noticed one other broadhead. It looks like a solid 100 maybe. Right. Um, so, yeah. So tell me about some of those. Tell me about, uh, you know, briefly besides customers, uh, uh, wanting them, you know, what was kind of some of the thoughts behind you actually putting them in production? What, so yeah. what's going on for 2019? Yeah. So on the, the solid 100 grain, that's been our most frequently asked for broadhead. You know, originally, we just had the vented series that went down to 100. When I came out with the solid blade series, I really just removed the vents. Um, 
and that added 25 grains. So we had the, the S125 on up and um, that, that's been very popular um, broadhead for us as well. But there's, um, you know, there's a camp out there that really likes solid blades, but they also want to shoot hundred grains. So initially I wasn't going to do it. I didn't want to thin up the blade or the ferrule or reduce the strength at all. So um, spent quite a bit of time working on design, getting it to where I thought it would would be um, would be good. And I finally came. I finally was able to do it where I I maintain the the same blade thickness, sixty two thousandths thick, the same cutting diameter, um, same bleeder blade is used, and I just decreased the the front to back length on the on the main blade by I think it's twelve and a half percent shorter in length, and the ferrules brought back also. Um, so. Yeah, I got it down to 100 grain. So we're just launching our solid 100 grain. We have it pre-order now. We're going to start shipping those in March. And that seems to be a, a real popular one that people want to want to try. Huh. That's that's interesting to me. I, um, you know, I guess I suppose if, if I were going to shoot your solid head, I'd have just gone up to the 125s and been happy with it. But yeah. I don't know. I guess, like you say, there's those people out there that, that aren't looking to add 25 grains to the front of their arrow. Right. Well, a lot of guys did. A lot of guys switched to a 125 grain just to shoot the solid. And I think I think people are better off in general with a little bit of, of weight. If you switch to a 125 yeah. and then you maybe have to increase your spine, you get a little bit, you know, instead of 400 to Instead of low 400s, now you're maybe the high 400s in your total arrow weight, and I think that's a, I really think that's a good place to be for, for elk for sure. And um, you know, I think the people that have tried it probably won't, won't go back. I think it's a positive thing to do. But uh, yeah. under grain is still by far the most popular out there, and and there's different ways to add weight too. Some guys want to add it with, um, you know, brass insert or things like that. And which I guess brings me to my next new product, which is our our impact collars. Um, so I've been making, um, these one inch hardened stainless steel sleeves, kind of like a, kind of like a footer, but, um, also have a, a little flange that goes over the end of the arrow. So the sleet slides over, um, so a flange holds on the end of your arrow and then a, a field point or a broadhead will hold it in place. Um, you can add epoxy to even further strengthen it, but it's, it's not needed and it's, um, hardened stainless steel. So it's very strong. So, so basically I just want to make sure that I'm understanding you correctly. Um, you have a hidden, say hit insert inside the shaft, you slide your sleeve over and then you're able to screw your broadhead in and your broadhead, you know, the threading into the hidden insert is what's holding that sleeve on as opposed to say a footer where you're epoxying it on. Right. Yep. That's right. okay. Yep. Cool. And I like Wicked. the, I like that. The hit insert, um, well, the thing I like about it is that in, the, in, say, the 204 ID or the 165 ID arrows, kind of the, the micro or I don't know what you call it, the medium and then and the micro diameter um, sizes that accept the hit insert. Um, the nice thing there is that the broadhead, um, that shank of the broadhead, that diameter next to the threads is really kind of the datum surface on the broadhead. So... I know that, um, you know, we make our ferrules on a on CNC Swiss machine and the concentricity to that diameter um, is to within 10 thousandths of an inch. So, and if I can now locate on that diameter, if, on the ID of the arrow, and the ID of the arrow is really kind of the datum surface of the arrow, that's the most consistent um, diameter, accurate diameter. If I can locate 
my broadhead directly to that, uh, you know, I'm guaranteed this thing is going to spin really true. Um, so th that's why I've, I've liked using the, the hit inserts, um, say in, in the Easton axis, for instance, or carbon injection. The, the negative there is that you just have carbon, you know, going from that hit insert out to the end of your arrow. So I do a lot of heavy bone impact testing. And if you get this big side load, you can, you can damage the carbon um, arrow there or even break out the side of it. So I've been making these hardened stainless steel sleeves for myself for a couple of years just for um, my own durability testing. And then I started hunting with them and, and really like them. And I think enough people saw them in um, my photos or video clips and have asked about them. Um, it kind of made me realize that, you know, other people would probably like to use these as well. And right. you can use them not only on... I think there's some people that do this already, but those hit inserts will fit in not only Eastern axis, but other say, you know, gold, uh, gold tip, um, kinetic or kinetic chaos. Um, those will accept the hit insert also down in. Um, so you can use these, um, impact collars with on a number of arrows. And I just added a compatibility chart to our website to show, you know, which arrow would go with, go with, uh, which collar size. Awesome. Awesome. That, uh, you know, you had mentioned, you know, strengthening up the end of the arrow uh, before you decided, you know, you'd also mentioned that you thought maybe other people might like to try it as well. But did you have people reaching out uh, with issues or concerns of the end of their arrow shaft breaking when using the hit inserts? We get, so we have a, we have a light. Hello. I get broadheads back for generally it's when they've gone through an animal and hit a rock and then I'll, they'll smash in the tip a little bit. Um, but you know, I also want to get them back just cause I want to learn if there's, if there's some failure point or something wrong with them, I, I want to know about it. And we don't get many back, but it's typically that if they hit a rock or one brought in into another in a target, uh, we're trying to encourage people not to shoot the same spot uh, for that one. But um, there have been a few that have come back where, um, yeah, there were hit inserts and typically it has been a heavy, you know, big rock type hit. This hasn't just been on an animal, um, but where we'll, we'll bend way back at the threads because that's where the arrow, the broadhead is just being held really by the threads back there. If you get a heavy side impact, that, uh -huh. that carbon that goes out from the hit insert forward doesn't, doesn't give much side support. Um, I, you know, I think it's more of a thing with rocks and not, not typically with animals, but I think if you hit a heavy bone, um, on a side like that, I think it's pop. It could happen as well. Um, definitely the guys, you know, there's quite a few guys out there that do these, uh, durability tests with different broadheads and show them on YouTube channels. And, and I've talked to a number of those guys and, and they all agree that if, if you're doing those kind of testing, you almost need to have that hardened sleeve over the arrow to not, to not wreck an arrow every time you shoot at those heavy bones. Right. <laughs> so, you know, it, yeah. it just adds a lot of life because you're also not, the other thing I hear once in a while um, is that even with FMJs that people just shoot them a lot and, and are hitting, occasionally hitting something with a hard impact that you can start smashing in the end of that arrow or mushrooming it out. And, this will protect it from that happening as well. So I think it just 
extend your arrow life. And if you happen to have a situation where say that, that leg comes back as you're shooting and you hit that upper leg bone, um, this will give you a better chance of, of getting through it. I was just doing a moose bone testing two weeks ago where I had that, um, that large leg bone and I was shooting the 120 or 125 head with, uh, with a 25 grain, uh, impact collar. And I was blowing through moose bones with it and I could still spin that, that arrow still spun true afterwards. Um, Dang, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah I put a picture on our Instagram on that. But yeah, I was, I knew, I, I shot some moose shoulder blades quite a bit prior and, um, and I, and they spun through there and I could still shave hair and I kind of expected that, but that big, you know, three inch diameter bone, I, I didn't actually think I was going to get through it. Um, but it, it did, it blew right through it. Um, and yeah. And so if you, if you're having those kind of impacts, um, that, impact collar really helps. And I, I think it helps for, for everything, but most situations you're probably, um, you know, most shots to the animal behind the shoulder, you're probably not going to wreck the arrow, but this will make sure of it that you don't. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what, uh, weight grains are your impact collars offered in? Uh, just 25 grains right now. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. So with what, uh, now, so you guys now offer uh, broadheads from 100 to 250. Uh, are, are they just at 25 grain increments? Um, yes, they are. Cool. Cool. So with all your broadhead designing and, you know, the, the broadhead that you have now, uh, how – what kind of moments have – you know, have, you know, say, say the moose bone is for instance, where it, where it blew completely through it. Uh, what moments have you had with your broadhead and your design that you shot it and you were just like, Holy shit, that worked better than I even expected. Yeah. There's been a lot of those over the years. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> I, I, I'm, uh, I'm amazed myself, um, over and over again at, at what is capable. You know, I knew, I knew initially that, there was some great opportunity with changing materials in, in the durability that I could achieve. But um, what I learned over the years is, is what an opportunity there was in sharpness and hardness of the edge and, and how well that improved penetration. But yeah, I'm still amazed. I, I shot a um, one bull elk. It was a, it was a steep quartering away shot. He was kind of moving through an arc as I shot and, an arrow entered right by the hip. I saw this blood shoot out right by the hip as it entered. And I thought, uh Oh, I shot too far back, but went all the way through the elk up through the heart and came out between the brisket and the front shoulder. So it went through, Jeez. that's over four feet of elk. I'm not sure what the total was, but, um, yeah, that, you know, that shot that I had, um, a friend of mine shot a quartering on uh, downward quartering on shot in a bull and went went through the front shoulder and exited the last rib on the far side. So it zipped all the way through, including shoulder blade. Um, we had, we've had a number of people do either a single or double shoulder blade pass throughs. Um, we had a guy shoot a moose that, um, a huge Yukon moose, this testimonial is up on our website, but it, it blew through the near side shoulder blade and buried deep in the far side, um, shoulder, shoulder bone on that moose and, and dropped it. Um, but there have been a lot of them like that. So, uh, Eric from Muley Freak just called me yesterday and, 
he just started shooting them and um, it's going to be in one of his uh, mule deer films coming out, but it was a 51 yard shot and the buck, he thought it was going to keep stepping out and it's, it stopped as he shot. So he shot a little forward and, and it must've been slightly quartering too, because it went through the shoulder bone on the near side, missed the near side lung, but went through the far side lung and then blew through the far side shoulder bone and got a complete pass through it at 51 yards. And, um, with a single long hitter, just ran hundred yards and, and dropped. And, and he was amazed because he's been a, um, he's been a mechanical guy mostly. And he said, uh, in his experience, a mechanical, he would not have gotten that deer, you know, would have hit the near side shoulder blade. It wouldn't have penetrated enough to get that far side long. Um, so he thinks he would have wounded an animal. So he, he's pretty excited about the performance that he just saw on a big, big mule deer. Dang, that's that's impressive. That is really impressive. I, uh, yeah, because I've had you know, I've had expandables fail. Um, honestly, I've had I've had uh, solids where I had complete pastures on animals and they didn't they didn't bleed at all. And uh, he didn't. The elk didn't die. I found his antlers. You know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how, but you know, I so I've I've had kind of an array of things as well so i i definitely know the the value of a of a good broadhead um and you know i i think there's a place in time for a mechanical uh you know if i'm shooting an antelope i i would feel okay shooting a mechanical but that that's kind of about where where my want to shoot a mechanical ends um I just, man, I don't know. I've, I've had unlucky things happen with mechanicals on both deer and elk. I've had rages not open and I just, yeah, I start seeing, seeing, you know, all the testimonials from you guys and you know, how well they're flying, how sharp they are, the pass-throughs and everything like that. And it's just, it's just, you guys are definitely building a great reputation. So for that, I, I commend you. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. You know, I've, I've, I've been against mechanicals just because, as, as an engineer, I just see how many potential failure modes there are, and I, I don't want to risk those. But uh, more recently, I've, I've been testing a more to really get a, an understanding, um, a better understanding of myself. And you know, some of the things I've seen is when I'm, I'm shooting through shoulder blades with them. Um, one of the most popular mechanicals out there. It you know, I was breaking, breaking blades off or bending them badly, or at least knocking the edge down enough to where it wasn't going to cut very well. Um, but typically bending or breaking, um, the blades. And then when I pushed through that uh, moose hide, I tried a couple of different mechanical designs there and the force to try and cut through that hide was over 10 X what I was seeing with our, with our broadhead. It's, I don't think people. It's insane. Yeah, it's you just aren't going to get anywhere near the penetration you can get um, with our fixed blade. And I understand that people shoot them because they want to be accurate at long range. But I think you know what I've seen with ours. We've we've had a number of people talk about follow up shots they've taken where they wouldn't shoot this far normally, but are taking follow up shots where um, animal stops out there 100 yards and. Um, had a few guys say this on bull elk that they've got pass-throughs at 100 yards um they're, right. they're hitting where they're aiming and they're still um, penetrating well way 
way out there. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah. um, there may be a place of mechanicals, but I don't, not for me, I guess. <laughs> no, no, I, I understand. I, I feel the same way, you know, I, and I, I think, I think it takes a person, um, you know, cause you, you, when you grow up in an era of mechanicals, um, I think, you know, you see people like Tim Gillingham and things like that, that swear by mechanicals and that's all they shoot. Uh, but I think as soon as you have one, not work the way that it's supposed to, uh, I think your thoughts of not wanting to shoot one anymore and switching to a solid, like your broadhead or like a Valkyrie or something like that. I think that, uh, quickly changes. And I think the, the want and the desire and the need for mechanicals is at the ass end of the lack of knowing what to do with your bow and how to tune your bow. Um, which is, I just think that's how it is. And it's probably, uh, I don't know. I think people just, it's bow tuning. Isn't something that you learn overnight, you know, but that's something that plays a very big role in, in how you're, and arrow tuning as well, you know, both the arrow build and then the bow tune and how you that arrow and is tuned to your bow and the bow is tuned to your arrow so that they work together as a team is, is something you don't learn overnight. And that's, that's a big importance for getting your arrow and your broadhead to fly correctly, no matter what your setup is. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, you know, learning, learning about tuning your bow and, and getting that, um, it, and also arrows, you know, there's, we, we occasionally find somebody will be just severely underspined and, and, um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, understanding the, what's the right arrow for your bow setup and tuning your bow. Those, if, if you're, if you haven't put time into that, that's certainly the, the first thing to do, I think. Yep. Well, cool. So, so what's, what's next for Iron Will? Yeah, so one thing, uh, oh, I guess you'll be the f- first to hear this probably. We, I've been working on a, a, a knife for a while. Um, so I do a lot of backpack hunting, backcountry hunting, and, and I haven't really found a good premium blade steel in an ultralight knife. So I've been working on one for myself for a while, and we're just about to, I think we're going to start selling it in May. We're probably going to put it up for pre-order here in a month or so, but pretty excited about it. It's a, it's a one inch, it's a one ounce, uh, knife and that's cool. um, (laughs) That's awesome. Holds an edge really well. It's our same two tools. Yeah. It'll hold an edge really well. I got through, I used one knife on, um, to do my elk and mule deer, um, without touching it up, you know, skinning, quartering, deboning complete. Um, did that with my elk and my mule deer. And then I, um, with a different one I used, um, to do my, the bear that I got this fall. I shot a big bear in Colorado in the back country. Um, and then I used that same one on a, on a whitetail and I caped the whitetail with it afterwards. So they held the edge well enough to get through that. And, you know, I, the replacement blade knives, um, you know, everybody know is using those, but you know, they, they break often or you got to exchange them. And, and I like a knife that I don't need to do that with, and I'm going to get through that animal you know, without having to change a blade or, or replace it. Um, I mean, you can use this along with yeah. that, but, and at, at one ounce, it's, uh, it's, I, I've been using a couple of, I've been carrying a couple of knives that together weighed a pound. So I'm excited to get down to one ounce. 
<laughs> yeah, that'll save you some right there. <laughs> um, anyway, that will be coming out soon. I, yeah, I showed that at ATA and had a, had a ton of people wanting to walk away with that knife. A lot of, lot of interest in it for sure. So That's cool. Yeah, I, just, uh, I actually just saw on your website uh, the other day that it's supposed to be coming soon. So that's, that's cool. Uh, Bill, I, I appreciate it a ton. You know, you taking the time out of your day to hop on the podcast with me. I am, I'm, well, I have an associate's in engineering, so nothing like you have, but that side of me loves to geek out on specs and designs and everything like that. So I feel like I could probably talk with you for several hours or days um, all about just the design and why things were made the way that they are. Uh, but in the meantime, I appreciate it a ton. You hopping on the podcast. Thank you very much. Yeah, you bet. Um, yeah. Give me a call anytime. I'm, I'm always happy to talk to you the, the engineering of broadheads and archery. So appreciate you having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the show. It means a lot to us. But seriously, though, I really appreciate your ear. And it would mean the world to me if you would rate our podcast. If you didn't like it, one star it. But if you did, a five is even better. Don't forget to comment, like, share, and hit that subscribe button. Thanks again for tuning into the show. Some other podcasts that you should definitely check out are... Eastman Elevated with Bride and Barney. And Hunt Harvest Health with Ryan and Hillary Lampers. And a special thanks to Maven Optics, Six Sight Gear, Dark Energy Tech, Shield Mountain Outdoors, The Outdoor Insiders, Iron Mind Hunting, Valkyrie Archery, and Gannett Ridge Sporting Equipment.